Thanks, guys. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians. Now, tonight we're going to be talking about something that fits in um, with that Old Testament reading quite well. Talking about sound judgment and discernment. You know, in, in the proverb we read, it says, you know, don't let these things out of your sight. They will be life for you. This passage tonight, some of us will be familiar with. Um, no doubt you've heard it before if you've been around church a while. And um, I've titled it uh, tar- uh, Temple Partnerships, and we'll get to kind of what that means. Um, but this letter uh, is a quick background since we're in this middle of this series, sort of hopping around the New Testament. Uh, the Corinthian church was in Greece, west of Athens, and it was a very wealthy, prosperous city. Uh, and this city, one of the things Paul talks to them a lot about is, is sin. Uh, they were a somewhat rebellious group. And um, he actually talks to them a lot about things like sexual sin and idolatry because it was a port city. And the way it worked is a lot of people came and went on a daily basis, and they were very wealthy. And, and so because of these things, the church there had all of these traditions and, and these old ways of living that Paul was constantly trying to correct and work with them on. And so the church here has been battling sin and idolatry from years and years of tradition and culture. And in our text tonight, Paul is sort of in the middle of a discourse on the gospel and the power of Christ and the promise of heaven. And really what he's talking about to the Corinthians is saying is a discourse on how Christians ought to live. As we talked about last week, for those of you who are here uh, with the Harvest Festival, the Christian life is not just about following rules, but it should be a way of living that is attractive to the world. It should be a way of living that brings the world into love and into justice and into peace. You know, as it said in the the proverb we read, you know, the Lord will be our confidence. He'll keep our foot from being snared. When we lie down, our sleep will be sweet. This is what God is getting after. This is what the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthian church about. And so our passage tonight is simply that. It's a church that needed forgiveness. It's a church that needed to turn from evil. It's a church in this context that really was ready to move forward but needed some instruction. You know, if you've ever talked to someone who's a younger or a new Christian, there are certain practical things you just got to talk through. And, and so tonight, it's, it's, it's a little bit of that. And so I want you to look at our text with me. It is in, as I said, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 14. (coughs) Excuse me. We'll start in verse 14 and we'll read through the first verse of the 7th chapter. Uh, So please follow along with me. Paul says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, 
perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a good passage that I'm sure some of you have heard before, and I hope we can get some truth out of it, because it seems to me Paul is addressing an issue we've all sort of talked about at one point in our lives. How do we balance, if we claim to be a Christian, how do we balance relationships with those who do not believe what we believe? How do we live this life in this world, but also be a Christian? You know, I remember wondering this uh, as a young man, as I've mentioned before, I came to, to faith as a teenager. And, and in the 90s, there was this whole kind of culture really backlashing in the Christian church against secular things, against TV shows, against movies, against, especially against music. If you remember in the late 90s, one of the first t- you know, tragic school shootings happened in Colorado, and they blamed a lot of popular music on this. They said you know, these kids were listening to these awful lyrics and everything, and my mom um, really did not like a lot of that music, and I happened to like a lot of that music. And I remember the, the, the whole church world sort of rebelling against this, and you can actually go into Christian bookstores, which don't really exist anymore because of Amazon, but you go into these places called bookstores, and they sold books, and, and then in the back they had a music section. And in, and in the music section of these Christian bookstores, it would... It would it was, it was supposed to guide lost young men like me, but you walk over and you say, if you like this secular band, try this Christian band, and they're the same. And it was awful. So, so some of the bands I liked, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Green Day, you know, I was really into punk rock, so no FX and Rancid and, and bands like this, and I'd go and I would try these Christian bands and just think, these are terrible. This is not the same. But my mom hated this music so much that I remember really struggling, actually, as a teenager, thinking, how do I do this? Can I be a Christian and still like this music? Can I be a Christian and still think that movie's funny? And, and then I remember looking at my friends, and because of how I grew up, and, and my, not, not a lot of my friends were Christians. And, and I remember all of a sudden I, I was sort of torn And it's funny because this continues into our adult life. We sort of wonder, how do we balance this? You know, and some pastors have said, and some of my youth pastors said that, you know, when you become a Christian, you can't be friends with these people. You have to sort of build up these boundaries and these walls. And, you know, there's a verse that I remember being quoted at me all the time in youth group, and I still have it memorized because I was so scared of it. It's from 1 Corinthians 15.33, and it says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so I thought, oh no, if I I spend any time with non-Christians, if I listen to the Beastie Boys, I'm going to hell. Well, I still listen to the Beastie Boys, and I haven't gone to hell yet. But I remember thinking, you know, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He hung out with sinners. I'm pretty sure Jesus would have liked punk rock. Why can't I figure out a balance here? You know, why can't I find a way as a Christian to love Jesus, but also still have these other friends and still live this other way? So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. Something we've all thought about and sort of rationalized in different ways. Um, and, And so I want to talk about how I, at least, and how I interpret this passage that Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. And in verse 14, he starts out fairly straightforward. He says, do not be unequally yoked. So that we would know this is what a yoke looks like, uh, if you go to the first picture, right? 
You got, you got two cows or two oxen, they got the big board and they got the rings and, and they're yoked. This is, this is what Paul is talking about. And the visual helps me because when one moves, then the other moves. Or when, you know, and, and this is what Paul is saying. He's, he's, he's creating this image in people's heads saying, we don't want to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so what does that mean? Well, if you look at this next picture, it's a very clear depiction. See, you have one who's decided to lay down and one has decided to stand. And it's funny and awkward because one of the things I love about this is they both look miserable. The one, on, the one on the right is trying to rest and its head is tilted up like this. And then the one on the other side is trying to stand and his head is being ripped down this way. See, when there's a level of, of things being unequal or out of harmony, both of these poor cows look miserable. And Paul goes on, if you go back to the text, Bema, in verse 15, Paul goes on and he says, so don't be unequally yoked. Now, what harmony is there? He says, what do these things have in common? What does wickedness and righteousness have in common or light with darkness? He says, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial or Belial? And Belial is, just so you know, it's a word used for wickedness, that sort of representation of evil. Um, I don't know that it's an actual name for the devil, but it's one of the things the Bible uses to refer to just evil and wickedness, and, and so, so that you're aware that's what that is. But what he's drawing attention to, he's saying, what role does Jesus have in wickedness? We look at the life of Christ, did he have any role? What harmony was there between Christ and wickedness? None. You know, he's drawing very, very clear boundaries to show the distinction. And he continues in verse 16, he says, What place for there is idols in the temple of God? None. You know, what did Jesus do when all the people were changing money on the tables and, and, and they were setting up idolatry of, of, of buying their way into forgiveness? Jesus got so mad, he goes in with a whip and starts flipping tables over. There's no place for idolatry in the temple of God. And obviously these are rhetorical questions Paul is asking because he, he leads us into this next section saying that we are the temple of God. Inside of you, there cannot, nor should there be idols. There cannot, and should, light and dark cannot coexist. You know, what's amazing is this is something that both the Bible and science agree on. You know, if you read about physics and if you read about light and darkness, light and dark can't be in the same place. And in fact, I, I read about this and I got really distracted into this whole physics, you know, discussion board. But one of the things people were talking about was that darkness isn't a thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. Think about that. When, when God talks about himself as light, he is saying that he brings light of the, he is the light of the world. He brings light. Psalm 139, as I said, it talks a lot about this. But when we talk about darkness, that is somewhere that God is not. Or that Christ is not shining his light. And, and, and what he's basically saying, Paul is arguing here, is that these cannot coexist. He's saying you are the church. You have the light of Christ. Therefore, there should be no darkness in you. There should be no idols in your life. And then he goes on and quotes some things from the Old Testament, talking about the promises of God being fulfilled in Christ. What are these promises? He's saying you need to separate yourselves from the world because you are the children of God. And idols and sin and darkness have no place in the house of God. And we know this is true and we know this promise. 
by the promise that he gave to the Israelites way back in Deuteronomy that he gives through Christ that he is our father and we will be sons and daughters. We've talked about this a lot in here. And so he finishes in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says basically, get rid of the junk in your life and bring holiness. You know, we all know this to be true. We've heard it over and over again at church. Be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. And we try and we work and we do all these things and and we try to find a way to make it so. And people have been doing this for forever, right? You know, many of you know I'm sort of obsessed with um, monasticism and monks. Um, I think it's really fascinating. I've studied it. And, And this is how monks and nuns started, right? They just wanted to be like Jesus, and they pulled away from society, and they got rid of all the temptation and all the wealth and lived simple lives. But even when they did that, what happened? Their minds started to betray them, and they started having pride and guilt and all of these other things and all of these other struggles And it's great to get away from distractions, but then your mind will betray you. And and sometimes, honestly, I've always thought that this commands of this book are so hard that it'd be easier just to run away. But for me, at least, I know that uh, becoming a monk is not the answer. And and so I want to really talk about how I think we can balance this. Because I think there's a danger in this passage, and I want to share it with you. You know, not all of us come from the perfect uh, nuclear family. Not all of us come from a situation where all of the people closest to us love the Lord. And in fact, sometimes we feel like we might be stuck next to or forced into being yoked to someone who does not love the Lord, who's laying down when we want to stand and when we want to lay down and standing. And some of us can't always control these things. And I remember hearing some pastors and hearing some people teach this passage and saying that you should have no close relationships with unbelievers and you should not be married to unbelievers and and all of these different things. And I remember always wondering, how, how does someone feel in there who maybe came to faith later in life and their spouse is not a believer? How does someone feel then when they came to Christ and all of their friends are believer or are not believers? Are they supposed to cut all ties with all of their relationships? You know, if you're, if you're interested in this big picture, by the way, just to mention, there's a book out there called The Benedict Option. Um, and there's this guy who kind of argues for a rebirth of, of Christian culture and that Christians should pull away more from society. Um, it's really, really fascinating. It's by a guy named Ron Dreher. It's called The Benedict Option. Um, and, and I think Christians should do this to a point. Right? I think we should have some of these rules. I think we should have some of these boundaries. But in my experience, I only think it's true to a point. You know, the Greek word here, I often don't talk about Greek, but the Greek word Paul uses here is not, when he talks about being yoked, it's not the same verb he uses for marriage. So I don't want you to think, or relationships, this is not a sweeping statement about all marriages. It's not a sweeping statement about all relationships. It is a u- it's a word used here to, to shed light on relationships in the context of worship. Because if you look at this, the text and what he's talking about, he's talking about worshiping God and idolatry in worship. And this, this word he actually uses here is only used once in the New Testament. Paul is talking very specifically here about idolatry and being with those who worship idols and take away from our worship of God. And so this passage, to me, and one of the ways I've figured out this balance, is that it's, it's, it is about relationships, but it's also about worshiping God. 
You know, we don't always have specific examples of how Jesus handled things, but in this case, we kind of do. So if you remember in, in, in John chapter 4, there is a woman who he meets at a well who happens to be very unequally yoked. And Jesus meets this woman, and they're talking, and if, if, if you don't know the story, you can read it later. We don't have time tonight. But in John 4, Jesus is talking with this woman. He says, well, why don't you go and get your husband? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. And in fact, you, you've been living with a guy who's not your husband. And so she says, wow, you must be a prophet. And they go on and they keep talking. And, and Jesus ends up telling her something that's really great. But one of the things I notice here is when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, he does not go and say, the number one thing you must do is find a Christian spouse. The number one thing you must do is figure out all of the little circumstances in your life and have all of these relationships be perfect. Nor does he tell her to do whatever she wants because it doesn't matter. There's a middle ground. And he tells her what matters most above all else is that she should worship God in spirit and in truth. Hear that again. When it comes to relationships, when it comes to to, to growing close to God, to being a son and a daughter of the king, he says what is most important is that we worship God with spirit and in truth. And the Apostle Paul here is saying, listen, you need to realize something, church. If you are in this situation You need to find a way to keep these relationships from leading to idol worship. We need to listen to the Apostle Paul and not just throw away this passage, but we also need to understand that life doesn't work out perfectly. You know, if you think about it very practically, we need to use discernment, right? If you are a Christian, or if you are an, if you are a Christian, it would not be wise to start a relationship or have the most important person in your life be an atheist. That just wouldn't make sense, right? You know, I also come from a family of people who come from, from drug and alcohol problems. And, and one of the things that wouldn't make sense also is if someone had a problem with alcohol, it would not be good for them to start a new relationship and be super close with someone who went out drinking every night. This is clear. These are simple discernment things. But oftentimes, life isn't perfect. Oftentimes, our immediate families, whom, by the way, none of us chose our families, right? We were born into them. Have Christians and non-Christians. Does that mean that we, we, we abandon those relationships in our life? Certainly not. And if, if two people are married and one person comes to faith or grows in maturity in Christ, should that marriage end just because a person became a Christian? Certainly not. What did Christ say to the woman at the well? He said, if you believe, you need to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the first thing she does is she goes into the town and starts telling people about Jesus. Because one leads to another. And if you are worshiping God and in spirit and in truth, it will lead to that which is good. I don't think Christ wants us to exclude people totally. You know, if the disciples and early followers of Jesus didn't spend time with (laughs) non-believers, none of us would be here. (laughs) The church would have died out in a generation or two. They loved and they cared for others. They had relationships and spent time discussing and living life with others. So then the question becomes for us, what do we do? I think the important thing here to know is that in our spiritual journeys, 
We need to find someone who we can walk this road to Jesus with. Ideally, it would be our partner, our spouse, our best friend, but that may not always be the case. Ideally, it would be a family member or someone like that, but that's not reality. So what we need to do, let me suggest this. If you've often wondered this, or if you have someone you're close to who's not a Christian, and you feel bad about it, or you're wondering what to do and how to balance this, let me say two things. One, we have to be responsible for our actions. There's no way around that. I have friends who aren't Christians the same way I have friends who are. But let me suggest this, that you need to have, if you are a Christian, even if you may have friends and relationships with those who aren't, you need to have one person in your life who you can be 100% open and and is trustworthy, that you can walk in spirit and in truth with. At least one. You don't have to break ties with all non-believers. But the reason I titled this sermon Temple Partnerships is because I believe that all Christians, as we are the temple of the living God, need a partner to walk and live this life with. Maybe it's, maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe it's someone who helps you with that difficult relationship. We need to find one. Because I believe that one leads to more. But let me say this and let me be very clear. If you are depending on someone... If you are a Christian, as a foundation, and you are depending on someone in life above all others who does not worship God in spirit and in truth, it will negatively affect your ability to worship God in spirit and truth. And that is the truth. I cannot say it any other way. Because we are called to worship God. We are called to walk a road. And if we are not doing that, If our primary person in our life is not, we need to find another person who we can go to and do that with, that we can worship God with. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but it does get harder because we need to worship God. And when we worship God, we hear from the Spirit. And when we commune and hear from the Spirit, as we sang in that song, we gain direction and truth. You know, if you're yoked to someone who is laying down... Make sure you have another person in your life you can tie up to who can encourage you so that you can be strong for that person. You don't have to cut off that relationship, but go and find someone who can help you encourage that other one. Christ has not called you to abandon the people in this world you love. Christ put them in your life so that you can give them love and grace. But how can you do that unless you are connected to the body of Christ and gaining and being filled from them? I want you to look real quick with me uh, at John chapter 17. I didn't put it up on the screen, so you'll have to actually turn your Bible there. In John chapter 17, Jesus is getting ready essentially to die. And he's praying for his believers, and he's praying for the church and what would happen after he leaves. And I think Jesus gives us a great example of what he's talking about here. How we balance this. He says this in verse 15, John 17, 15. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. How good is that? He's praying to God and he says, God, don't take them out of the world, but keep them safe. And how does God keep us safe? By surrounding us with brothers and sisters in Christ who can help build us up and help make us stronger. You know, Jesus, and this is what I always tell teenagers, right? Because I get this question all the time as a youth pastor. 
Is it okay that my boyfriend's a non-Christian? Is it okay that my girlfriend's not a Christian? Is it okay that, that all my friends aren't Christians? And I always say this, you know, remember, Jesus hung out with sinners all the time, but he never hung out with sinners while they were sinning. There's a big difference. He didn't go around collecting with tax collectors. You know, he didn't go around and say, hey, tax collector, I love you. I'm going to walk around with you for a while. And, you know, he, he robs a guy, basically, and says, ah, you really got that guy. You know, he, he, he also hung out with other people who did other dark things at night, and he wasn't there either. But because of his relationship, and because he loved them, and because he ate with them, and because he was a friend to them when they needed him and were ready to talk, he was there. And he gave them love and grace. And I know this is difficult, and I know it's a difficult thing to balance. How, do, how much do we give of ourselves to someone who doesn't understand or believe the same things, and, and how do I do this? Well, this is another reason we need people in our life to help us. You know, there are times for separation, but there's also times to fight for another person and to encourage another person as well. And I was thinking about whether or not to say this. I thought about it this week, and the more I've thought about it, the more I think it's true. I don't think that we, you, me, anyone, can be the strongest person in your life. Think about that. I don't think you can be the strongest person in your life. Every single one of us needs someone that we can depend on to help us and to encourage us and to lift us up. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a, 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 a mentor, maybe it's just a friend who we talk to, whatever it is, but none of us can be the strongest person in our life. If people depend on you all the time, you need to find people in your life you can then yoke yourself to so that you can depend on them. I believe Christ wants us to have each other. I believe Christ wants us to come together and find those people we can love and serve with. Because when you look at that picture of the two oxen all messed up, and, and they, they both look miserable. Don't subject yourself to misery that should not happen. And to carry out the analogy of this whole yoke of oxen thing, maybe you do have a, a weak one next to you. Maybe you do have one that's laying down and you're trying to get it motivated. It's getting tiresome. Find some help. Find two other strong oxen to help. Find four. I brought up one more picture I wanted to show you. Go ahead, beam into the last one. That's a team of six. If there's one slow, weak one, find four other people who love the Lord and serve the Lord and just surround them and shower them with love until they get up and start going on the road. You don't have to cut off these relationships. You don't have to forget these people. What you have to do is worship God in spirit and in truth that that person who you are yoked to would see the love of Christ. And we'll begin walking the road with you. You know, as the Apostle Paul goes on in Corinthians, he doesn't go in to talk about condemning sin. He doesn't go in in the next chapter to talk about how bad the Corinthian church is doing. Chapter 7 is all about his joy in the church. And how even though they're struggling, even though there's bumps in the road, he's so proud of them. And then in chapter 8, he says, take these things you've learned and go and be more generous. Go out into the world and be even more generous with your love, more generous with your resources, more generous with your time. This, this statement about being unequally yoked is not a blanket statement about whether or not to be married or not to be married. This is about how to worship. 
It's about how to find joy and be generous men and women who have a religion, who have a way of life that brings light to the world. And for you today, we need to be working at this unity and this growth. And be willing that if someone is completely uninterested in Christ, we can, if we need to, we can sever that relationship. If it's unhealthy for us, I get that. But do not, and hear me now, and I'll close with this. I think one of the important reasons Paul says it this way is he wants us to lift each other up. He wants us to build each other up. He wants us to be there for one another. But he does not want us to sacrifice ourselves for someone else. Christ has already done that for them. Christ has already died for that person. Give them the grace you have been given. Offer it freely in love and in mercy and in justice. Because God has already done what needs to happen for them and that we need to surround those people with love and grace the same way we were. That that person would get up and begin running to Christ. You know, passages like this can be tough. Especially if we find ourselves really close and caring a lot about people who don't know the Lord. But remember, Christ has died for that person. Christ loves that person, and Christ will continue to love that person. And whether it's you or someone else, Christ will show them his love. Do not let someone who has idols in their temple keep you from worshiping God. Do not let someone who does not worship the Lord in spirit and truth keep you from doing the same. Because that is what God has called us to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his wisdom, and I thank you for the Corinthian church. Lord, I pray for the church today. We constantly wonder how to balance this, Lord, and I think, I think we can do this. Lord, give us strength to deal with those who do not understand how we worship and why we worship. Give us wisdom and patience and discernment. And Lord, for the times we need help, surround us with other Christians to lead us, to let us lean on them, to show us the way to go. Lord, may we have many relationships in this life that encourage us so that we can encourage others. Lord, fill us up that we might pour out your love on others. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for making your yoke easy and your burden light. It is because of that that we worship you. We acknowledge your sacrifice for us. And Lord, we worship you. In the name of our Lord, we pray. Amen.